You are listening to season three of Black Girl Missing, a podcast that covers stories of black girls reported missing when they were under the age of 18. When black girls go missing, their cases are severely underreported in mainstream media. We want to shift the narrative. We invite you to listen, learn, and do whatever you can to help us bring as many girls home as possible. Due to the sensitive and sometimes graphic nature of these cases, we advise you to use caution when listening. Thank you for joining me for another bonus episode of Black Girl Missing. Today I'll be covering the disappearance of the Millbrook twins. Jeanette and Danette Millbrook were 15-year-old twins from Augusta, Georgia, who vanished from a convenience store near their home. In several of our episodes, we mentioned cases having zero investigation. This one is no different. The Millbrook twins were marked as runaways, and their disappearance wasn't investigated. The day is Sunday, March 18, 1990. After returning home from church, Jeanette and Danette went to church's chicken to get lunch for the family. Upon returning home, they told their mother, Miss Louise, that a strange man in a white van had followed them halfway on their walk home. Not much attention was paid to this observation at first because it's actually fairly common for girls and women to experience being followed at some point. After lunch, the girls took a walk to their old neighborhood, to their godfather's home, for money to get to school for the next week. Miss Louise had recently moved her children into a better home that subsequently took them out of their school district so their bus wouldn't be picking them up any longer. The girls also stopped at a cousin's home and their older sister's house. Before returning home, Jeanette and Danette stopped at the pumping shop, a local gas station that neighbors were all familiar with. The clerk served the girls their snacks and bid them a good day. She turned around, and when she turned back, the girls had vanished. This is 4.30 on this Sunday, and it was the last time the Millbrook twins were seen. Again, like many stories we've told on this podcast, Miss Louise was told she had to wait 24 hours before filing a report. Not long after Jeanette and Danette disappeared, Their names were removed from the National Registry of Missing Children without any reason given. That seems odd, right? We'll get to that. Put a pin in it. Very little is known about the original investigation of the disappearance of the Millbrook twins because a couple years after their disappearance, the case was closed and the case file was lost. I put that in air quotes. Lost. Fast forward 26 years. In 2016, the Thin Air podcast covered the Millbrook twins, and the hosts of the Fall Line podcast heard the episode and decided to do some additional digging that included writing a letter to Ernest Vaughns, an inmate at Dodge Prison. Why Ernest? After investigating John Millbrook, the twins' father, and his involvement with his daughters, it was found that he had several run-ins with the law, including a stint in prison for hiding a dead body. The shooter was Ernest Vaughn's. Miss Louise made it very clear that John Millbrook had very little to do with his children and that although they were high school sweethearts, she left him when the twins were about two years old because he was abusive and very cruel. 
rumors around the neighborhood were that John Millbrook had a drug problem and he allowed drug dealers in the neighborhood to use his apartment to carry out whatever type of activity that they needed to. And that's common for drug addicts who have their own place to allow um, dealers or other people in the neighborhood to come into their apartment and use it for whatever they need it for in exchange for drugs, money, or both. Now, Laura and Brooke, who are the hosts of The Fall Line, wrote Ernest Vaughn's a letter asking if he tell them what he knew about the Millbrook twins. He obliged, but not wanting to cause an issue in the case, the ladies handed the letter over to law enforcement. Nothing happened. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So in 2019, a documentary was released to try and shed light on this fumbled cold case. And while this documentary was being produced, the folks who were in the documentary actually reached out to Richard Roundtree, who was the who is the sheriff of Augusta at the time. I believe he still is at the time that I'm recording this. Trying to get some answers. Like we have this this evidence. We've got this letter from this guy who's still alive, who was around back then, who says he knows what's going on. Can we look into it? That would make sense. It's a cold case. Um, and it was odd because the case was reopened in 2013 when Richard Roundtree became sheriff. But when this letter was sent to the ladies from the fall line, that was 2017. So if they reached out to the sheriff's department, and I'm not questioning if they reached out, I believe that they did. But if they're reaching out to the sheriff's department in 2017, and it's in 2017, it's currently an open case, but you all decide not to follow up on that, this is when we have to look at the system. We, we say often the system doesn't work because you've got civilians doing some real super sleuthing and you're not even helping push that forward. That doesn't make any sense to me. So Ernest Vaughn's spoke with Paige Reynolds, a retired homicide detective and Laura Coates, a former federal prosecutor over the phone while they were making this documentary for the oxygen network. They told they told them that the twins were assaulted and killed at John Milbrook's home and that their bodies had been taken to a brickyard where multiple bodies have been taken um, during the time that Ernest Vaughn's was in the streets in Augusta. This information was taken to Richard Roundtree. He's an Augusta native, and he is the very first black sheriff in the history of Augusta, Georgia. After sending investigators to finally check the tips given by Vaughn's, they decided the information was not credible and opted not to pursue the case any further. That's the problem for me. Because there's so many loose ends that are untied here. And there's so many unanswered questions. And the sheriff's department has access to some of the information that can help provide answers to some of these uh, unanswered inquiries. Now, one thing that I like to think about is the small details, right? So... March 18th is before daylight savings time begins. 
So sun, the sun sets around 6.30ish in March. So if they went missing at 4.30 in the afternoon, it was still light out, but it was getting ready to get dark. So they wouldn't have stayed gone very long. They were going to have to hurry home. Running away was not something that was in their character. They came from a close-knit family. They had two younger sisters. They had an older sister on John Milbrook's side who they had a relationship with. And one of the oddest things about this entire story is when the girls went missing, John Milbrook's told his daughter and Miss Louise's daughter if they come looking for those girls and they want to ask me questions about the missing girls, you tell them I died. He said that. He said, tell the police that I am dead. He didn't want to look for his children. He didn't want anybody to ask any questions about his missing children. And I, I have a very close relationship with my dad. And I can't imagine going missing and having my dad say, Let's just not look into it. Just leave it. That is it. That is unreal. What? So I just. So for that to happen in 1990, for John Milbrook to say in 1990, tell the police I died. Let's not look for the girls. And then for 26 late, 26 years later, for Ernest Vaughn's to say. Oh, yeah, the girls were at. Millbrook's house oh yeah they were there they were assaulted or one of them was assaulted the other tried to protect her and then somebody you know hit her in the head with something and and they they died there yeah how would he know these very intricate details about the girl's mannerisms because in 1990 Ernest Vaughn's was 12 years old the Millbrook twins were 15. I'm not sure how old John Millbrooks was, but I'm assuming that he was considerably older than Ernest Vaughn's because he had 15-year-old twin daughters. He also had a daughter who was older than the twins. So he was clearly a grown man during this time. So when you think about what Ernest Vaughn's had to say, Ernest Vaughn's is serving time for murder. He ain't going nowhere. So there's two things that happens when a person is in prison for a long time. They are either very opportunistic and they're looking for something or they are very altruistic because something is gnawing at them, eating at them. But I don't think that Ernest Vaughn's and I don't know the man, so I can't say for sure, but I don't see how this would benefit him because if the people who possibly could have done this are either no longer living or are already incarcerated, what does he stand to gain? Like he doesn't have enough evidence to actually point the finger at anybody. He doesn't know enough information to actually say, I know who did this or I saw someone do this. All he had was vague information to point them in the right direction. So if you don't have concrete, hard evidence, you're not really getting anything out of it. So this really, it feels to me like it's just straight altruism. And I think it's interesting 
how the investigators went to talk to him. They went to the brickyards. They didn't, you know, really do a whole lot of it. They didn't dig up anything. They just looked around a little bit and then just left it there. They didn't take any cadaver dogs. They didn't do any additional digging. And like this was a couple years ago that all of this stuff started coming up. All of this evidence, all these reports, like when the ladies from the Fall Line podcast reached out to them, this is 2017. There's no reason why between 2017 and 2019, y'all ain't did nothing. That is just unreal to me. And it's, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around it because there's nothing standing in your way. And I know that Augusta is a, a town that you're either wealthy or you are very poor. There is a very, very broad class, uh, class line in Augusta. Um, Augusta, Georgia, if you are unaware, is where the Masters Golf Tournament is held every, I think, April. I don't know much about golf, so don't quote me on that. But I believe it's April. And Augusta, Georgia has this huge, huge uh, professional golf course. And that's where the Masters are held. And the Masters is a huge deal for uh, golfers, for professional golfers. And um, so it seems like their entire local economy really does rest on this week for the Masters. It's, you know, preparing for it, cleaning up after it, making sure they have all their ducks in a row. So I can understand how someone like Jeanette and Dana at Millbrook would fall through the cracks because... They they are, in this in a societal sense, in a law enforcement sense, they are purely a liability, nothing more, nothing less. They gain nothing from finding them. Um, and they lose nothing by completely ignoring the fact that they disappeared. And I also think it's interesting that, um, John Milbrook did some time in prison for hiding a dead body. The shooter of that dead body was Ernest Vaughn's. So, I mean, there's a lot of twists and turns because while there may not be a direct connection between the girl's disappearance, their father and Ernest Vaughn's, there's definitely some interweaving of some of the characters surrounding um, crime in the city, uh, the Millbrook girls, John Millbrook, um, some of the drug dealers in the area. And mind you, this is 1990. This is the crack epidemic is in full swing and the crack epidemic really hit small towns hard because drugs travel easily. It's it's nothing to get some drugs from here to there. And also when you live in a place that is close ish to the coast, uh, Drugs are not real far off. So, I mean, Augusta, Georgia is right across the... They share a border with South Carolina. And South Carolina is what? Right next to the ocean. So, <laughs> so the Atlantic seaboard is where, you know, these towns are running along. And it's nothing for drugs to come in. So, any place that is poor and small, they're, they're going to have drugs. They're going to have violence. So when Ernest Vaughn's is saying, oh, yeah, they dump bodies at the brickyard all the time. 
but police felt like they didn't need to go dig up that brickyard. It makes you wonder how honest the sheriff's department is being. Do they know something else? Because for this case, the original case file to completely disappear and for their case to be closed and for their name to be taken off of the missing persons registry, all those things are odd. And also, if your name is taken off of the missing persons registry, it's the um, national, why can't I think right now? The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I'm sorry. Um, in order to come off of their list of missing children, they have to cross-reference your case with law enforcement. So if you call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and say, hey, you know, my child was missing, but now they're not, um, you can take them off your list. Thanks. They actually won't take the child off until they talk to law enforcement first. When law enforcement says, oh yeah, we found that missing child, they're fine now. Um, then they'll take your name off. So someone from a law enforcement agency had to have called the National Center for Exploited for Missing and Exploited Children to say, oh, the Millbrook Twins, oh, we found them. So their name came down from the missing persons registry their case was closed. And when their case was closed, people assumed it was because the girls had at that time would have been 17 years old and they would have been old enough that they could not be forced to go home had they been found. Um, but they literally, like they marked these girls as runaways and did not investigate their disappearance at all. Not even a little bit. And I just cannot get over that. They do this to us all the time. If you are old enough to have walked off on your own, they decide that you did walk off on your own, not that you were potentially or possibly in danger. That is something. That is truly something. Um, I wanted to make sure that I gave a little bit of perspective from a black woman on this case because I kept everywhere I kept seeing it get covered, it was covered by white people. And we know that while they have good intentions, they may not see things from the same lens that we do. Now, Jeanette and Danette were 15 years old. And they both were, um, they were a little bit taller. And one of the things that's difficult about being a black girl um, in your teens is that men particularly men of a nefarious nature, they tend to look at you as though it's open season. And it's very uncomfortable. And it's very hard to really even know how to navigate that type of experience. It's really not something that our parents talk to us in detail about. Um, and I'm not even sure the parents always know that we're going through things like this. So, for the Millbrook twins to be a little bit taller, um, they were both beautiful girls, 15 years old. Um, I truly believe that somebody did either assault them or lure them off the street. Um, and maybe they didn't know that, that, that they were John Millbrook's daughters. Maybe they didn't know that because they didn't have a relationship with their dad. 
Maybe he was high when they got there and had no idea his kids were in his apartment. Maybe he didn't know. And once he found out, it was like, oh, well, I can't go back now. And I wouldn't put it past him to sacrifice his children for his own survival. Now, at the when I was watching this documentary on oxygen, um, John Milbrook was still alive. I'm not sure if he is now, but he was still alive at the time. But he was in a nursing home because he had um, severe dementia. But I, I wish that he didn't. And I wish that they were able to talk to him and question him and ask him some things about these girls disappearance because their families are their family is still alive. They have two younger sisters, their mom, and she just wants them to come home. And I hope that Ernest Vaughn's is wrong. I hope that he's wrong about them them being dead. I hope that he's he got them mixed up with some other girls. Um, but I know that when you are a black girl in a unsavory neighborhood around a bunch of men who may not be of the best character, anything can happen. And like I said, you're a liability to the police. They don't want to spend any amount of resources or time, no no sweat um, spent on these poor black girls who they're probably viewing as though they wouldn't be contributing much to society anyway. So let them let them let them die. It's fine. <sighs> it's such a heavy story because there's it, there's so many clues right in front of you and the, the police just won't. They just won't dig in, and that's it's infuriating. It's very frustrating. But um, I thank you very much for joining me. We will be back very soon with another after show and another bonus episode. Um, stay with me. Stay subscribed to our Patreon. Follow our social medias. Subscribe to the regular podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else you like to enjoy your podcasts. And I will see you all next time. Black Girl Missing Podcast is researched, written, and produced by three concerned black women who want justice for missing black girls. Today's episode was written and produced by Nikki Irene, and the Black Girl Missing theme was produced by Siraj Khalif. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at BLK Girl Missing. On Facebook, we're at Black Girl Missing Pod. On Instagram, we're at Black Girl Missing Podcast. Visit our website for more information about each case, blackgirlmissingpod.com. Contact us on social media or email us at blackgirlmissingpodcast at gmail.com with any tips, feedback, or names of girls you want us to look into. You can further support Black Girl Missing by subscribing to our Patreon, where you will receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and bonus episodes. Go to patreon.com slash blackgirlmissingpodcast and subscribe today. We really appreciate your support.